Welcome to Soccer Morning on Backheel.com. Here's your host, Jason Davis. Good morning, everybody. Happy March. Welcome into Soccer Morning here, brought to you by World Soccer Talk. New week of shows coming at you. Very big week of shows. Thank you very much for listening as always. Uh, Monday. Monday means recapping. Monday means games to, uh, to talk about, thankfully. But unfortunately, right now in the world of American soccer, Monday also means that the deadline for the, uh, for the MLS CBA is rapidly approaching. Players have games to play this coming weekend. The season technically starts on Friday. We are in, uh, we're in crunch time here. This is the 11th hour. Give me another cliche that means that there's, there's no time. Time is running out. As we speak, players, uh, representing, uh, players representing the union are in Washington, Washington, D.C., excuse me, to speak with MLS ownership. There's a federal mediator involved. Nobody knows whether there's any news when it comes to the free agent, uh, free agency demand, but we'll get into some of that. Certainly touch on what's trickling out message wise, at least from the player side. The owners, only one owner is willing to speak and he's been fined 150 large for doing so. We'll talk about that. A couple of good guests for you today. Christian Inez will join us to talk Premier League, League Cup final, some English action from the weekend. He's coming up in, uh, I don't know, nine minutes or so. And then at 10.30, bottom of the hour, Chris Kimrani from the Salt Lake Tribune will join us to talk about not just RSL's preparations for the season that may or may not start on time, but also the words from Deloy Hansen, the aforementioned owner who did speak out about the MLS CBA negotiations and, again, got fined $150,000 for doing so. Comments that... Do not paint the players' chances to get free agency in a very good light. If Deloy Hansen speaks for the owners, uh, we're looking at maybe a player strike if they go to the wall on this, but eventually the players will be waited out. They don't have the money. These things are, these things are coming to a head as we speak. Let's do the headlines first and then we'll get to Christian Hanesh to talk about the England weekend. Again, the MLS and the players final week of CBA negotiations. The, the deadline you would think is sort of, is Friday. I mean, that, the first game is supposed to be Friday, LA hosting the Chicago Fire at the StubHub Center. But in reality, the deadline is actually before that, maybe even, maybe Thursday, maybe even Wednesday. Because players aren't going to get on, remember, commercial jets, because that's how MLS operates, to fly to matches without a negotiated, signed, sealed, and delivered CBA. So you have 72 hours to get this done. The only good sign we have, the only positive news we have, comes from Nat Borchers, Portland center back, who was on that players uh, the players board, who told uh, ESPN FC's Jeff Carlisle that he is hopeful, that was the word, hopeful that a deal will get done. That's, that's something. It's a, it's a little... Sliver of hope. I mean, the word hopeful is supposed to convey hope. And yet, considering where we've been, considering that the players seem willing and ready, maybe not able to go long, but certainly willing and ready to strike over free agency, considering that the, the owners have been strident in their refusal to even address the issue, I'm not sure what this means. Maybe it means the players are starting to cave a little bit. And I think if we take the temperature of the average MLS fan, they would be a little bummed by that. Maybe you want the season to start on time. Hey, nobody wants their tickets to go bad. Nobody wants to miss out on the buzz in Orlando. Nobody wants to have all of those new television deals come to fruition on the week, on week one of the season. But we saw, I think for the long-term health of the league, for the notion that MLS wants to be one of the top leagues in the world, we all sort of believe the general consensus is free agency has to happen. And if they don't push for it now, they don't really show the, res- uh, the resolve to make the owners give, with them, give them what they want, it's not going to happen. Maybe it's a fool's errand, but they at least have to show that they're willing to strike over the issue. In the League Cup final, as I mentioned this weekend, Chelsea beat Spurs 2-0. Goals won by John Terry, won an own goal from Kyle Walker, created by Diego Costa. Uh, Chelsea wins their first trophy of the season. 
the League Cup is the League Cup. It's uh, third, fourth, fifth, whatever. There's not five competitions, but it's way down the list when it comes to the top English clubs. Chelsea is going to want to win the Premier League title, which they may have inched closer to this weekend despite not playing in the league because Manchester City lost. And they're going to want to go win the Champions League title. And those things are still out there for them. Those things matter more. Speaking of England, the FA chairman, Greg Dyke, has, pre- has presented FIFA with the, uh, with an, uh, I'm going to say opportunity, a proposal of sorts. Hold a presidential debate at Wembley. Now, we already know that FIFA does not have a good relationship with the English FA. The English FA doesn't like FIFA. FIFA doesn't like the English FA. So whatever Greg Dyke is suggesting is, uh, is likely to fall on deaf ears. The notion of a FIFA presidential debate I'm I'm fine with the idea, but consider this: Seb Blatter's power is relatively secure. I've outlined on this show why I don't think Seb Blatter's in any real danger of losing his job. He's not any real in re, any real danger of being defeated by those other candidates. So why would he put himself in a position to show up again on hostile in hostile territory? I don't know who's moderating this thing. Or who would moderate this thing. But why would he put himself in hostile territory to be grilled on live television, you would assume, or at least a live web stream of ty- of sorts? A guy who is notorious for flubbing things, especially in English. There's nothing to gain for Seth Blatter. This is an, inc- an incredibly cynical take on my part, but it's the one that I think Seth Blatter would follow. Greg Dyke says, I would love to see a leader's debate. I would love to see the four candidates for this election get in a room together and be questioned. We would happily host it at Wembley. Sky Sports. Oh, yeah, here's the television connection. Sky, in collaboration with the BBC, has invited all four candidates in the FIFA presidential election to take part in a live debate. So you get broadcast, you get a broadcast version on Sky and BBC. We believe this will present an unprecedented opportunity for the candidates to set out their plans and communicate directly with fans from around the world. We hope for a positive response. Now, you're going to see posturing. Those other three candidates that aren't named Seth Blatter, they may agree to this. They may say, hey, this is a good idea. But again, I don't think Seth Blatter has anything to gain. FIFA is not a direct democracy. FIFA is not, the fans are not voting for FIFA president. He doesn't need to convince Millions of soccer fans, and he's the guy for the job. Also in England this weekend, Liverpool beat Manchester City. I mentioned that already because City's title hopes fading by the moment. Big dent to their title hopes there. We'll talk to Christian Hernandez about that. And I'll leave you with this as we close out the news. The rumor of the day, and you guys know how I feel about rumors. Most of the time I ignore them. They're a bunch of bunk. But this one has me relatively excited. Mario Balotelli to Orlando City is the rumor. (laughs) I don't laugh because it's impossible. I laugh because it comes out of nowhere. And I have a little bit of a debate internally over whether or not this would be a good thing for Mario Balotelli. I've long said MLS might be a fine place for him to come play some soccer, get his head right, get away from the pressures of the European media, especially the English media. And yet you never know. Yet you never know. Let's take a break. When we come back, Christian Hinesh will join us, our friend from England. Talk about the Premier League weekend and that League Cup final. Don't go anywhere. Soccer Morning brought to you by WorldSoccerTalk.com. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on Backheel.com with Jason Davis. Here we go, back on Soccer Morning, brought to you by World Soccer Talk. Joined now on the telephone from balmy London. I'm going to say it's balmy. I have no idea. Christian, has, hey, Christian is, it, is it windy in London? <laughs> it is. My, uh, my mane is blowing all over the shop. Uh, there you go. Um, Christian is here to talk some English football, certainly 
the Premier League and the scores therein. But I think we have to lead, Christian, with the the first trophy of the season going to Chelsea, a 2 nothing victory over Spurs in the League Cup final. Um, in the grand scheme of things, uh, how important is winning this, this trophy to, to Chelsea and uh, the rest of their season? I think it's a nice way to kickstart things. I thought it was quite apt and, and fitting that it was Mourinho's first trophy in his first spell and now it's his first trophy in his second spell. I think for them it's, it's building that momentum because we look at Man United in, in the late 90s as, as winning the treble and, and thus far being the pinnacle of English football because of that achievement. And now we look at Chelsea as potentially trying to do the same thing and questions of can they do it? Can they manage things, not perhaps on a domestic front, I think in many ways that they're quite uh, strong in that position due to the failings of City. But certainly when it comes to the European side of things, can they manage that situation correctly? And can Mourinho perhaps learn and improve from his first spell and take them back to a Champions League final as, as Di Matteo did so successfully. You know, I don't imagine that anybody had um, Chelsea as anything but heavy, heavy favourites in this match. I mean, Spurs is obviously not a bad side, but Chelsea's the better team. They're leading the Premier League at the moment. They have all of that talent. We know about Fabregas and, um, and Costa and, and everybody else today. John Terry obviously scoring a goal in this game. But at the same time, they have something to prove to themselves that when push comes to shove and, and there is a trophy on the line that they get the job done. Exactly. That's, those are the moments that define you. I think playing well in the Premier League sporadically is not going to achieve anything other than brief memories of, of enjoyment in that situation. What's important is how you, you choose to, to handle yourself in those important moments. I thought Chelsea handled it exceptionally. Uh, the fact that they, they limited Spurs to so little, the, the way they nullified Kane, the, the decision to put Zuma in midfield and have him really shut down the space, I thought that, that Kane had a really hard afternoon and I felt quite sorry for him in that sense because at times it felt like he was leading the charge alone. It, admittedly, Ericsson hit the crossbar, but I thought that was a brief reprieve for them, really. Um, and that coupling with the fact of taking your chances, really putting your opponent to the sword, that's almost what I think we associate with Murray, that ability to shut down the opponent and limit the opponent's opportunities to hurt you. Mm-hmm. and then comfortably shut out the result to, to a narrow scoreline to a, a, a something nil result, be it 1-0 or, or even 2-0. So Chelsea wins the, the Capital One Cup for sponsorship purposes. The League Cup is the other way to look at that. Um, and at the same time, it's a double victory on the weekend. Not only do they get this trophy and the win over Spurs at Wembley, but they also pick up a point, uh, or they pick, up a, um, they pick up some distance in the standings with Manchester City, unable to win against uh, Liverpool. Uh, at Enfield, um, you know, the, uh, again, uh, Liverpool beating City, maybe not uh, a shock of any particular type, but when City has to keep pace with Chelsea and they lose a game like this, lots of questions being asked about their, their mental fortitude. Of course, and I think while it, it's fair to ask those questions, I think you also have to look at the tactical situation because, again, we're, we're looking at, City playing this 4-4-2 as they did against Barcelona and once again struggling with players who play in that central position in the final third in that what we consider a number 10 role really doing them significant damage I thought that was the issue again yesterday was that between that central midfield pairing there was just too much space for the likes of Raheem Sterling and even if you look at Coutinho's wonderful strike it's Raheem Sterling that finds a pocket of space in between the two of them that then sets up Coutinho to fire in that drive. Now, I think you have to, you know, contextualise that with the fact that City were undone by two exceptional strikes that perhaps on another day go over the crossbar wide of the post and sometimes you can't mitigate or you, sorry, you can, you can't mitigate for those fantastic opportunities and, and strikes. You know, you, you can't stop them. The problem is, again, it seems as if Pellegrini isn't learning from his mistakes. He's not moving with the team and, the fact that Toure was in there yesterday and it still didn't stop them losing is also seeming to put paid to the idea that, that he's the difference maker when in actuality it seems as if Pellegrini's the difference maker and not any. Well, I, 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 obviously, they, when, he's, when Yaya Toure's not in the lineup, they do miss him, but whether or not he can transform them when he's back in the lineup, I guess, is the question. And, and that's an indictment of Pellegrini and City if it, if it is turning on one player. I mean, look, there, some clubs in the world have one or two players who make a big difference, but they can still go win matches that they're supposed to win without a Ronaldo, without a Messi. These, these, these guys don't make or break the team because 
they they either have a su- sufficient cover or other players pick up the slack. Exactly. We must remember that City have spent over £220 million in recent years. This is not small-time expenditure. It's significant investment. And yet, you perhaps question what value they've got for that. Players like Scott Sinclair, who spending the weekend at, at Aston Villa on loan after a, a dismal spell. Jack Rodwell, another player that had to move on up to Sunderland because he, he couldn't cut it. I think it falls with the decision-makers on the, the, the acquisition side of things in terms of who are they trying to get? What are they trying to get as well? We we look at kind of the start of, of this City projection when they tried to get Kakar. Now, in hindsight, I think that would have been a terrible move uh, given his projection, but obviously it comes with hindsight. And for me, it's almost been indicative of the situation is that they've consistently bought the wrong players for the situation, for the team, and for what they were trying to do. Players like Edin Dzeko, who, yes, score goals, but are they the best fit for that team? Possibly not. Steven Jovetic is probably an even better example of a player who, yes, is a very good player. I, I, I don't contest that. I think he's a wonderful talent. But does he fit the tactical style? Does he fit the squad dynamic? Is he someone that you can bring on as a substitute and still have an impact? Or does he need the continuity of games to build up some momentum and build up those those statistics? That, for me, is the issue with City, is that essentially, yes, they've bought good players, but have they bought the right players? And I think the, the consistent answer with that is no. To that point, very quickly, I, I haven't had a chance to ask you about this. The the the, the acquisition of, of Wilfred Boney, uh, the transfer from, from Swansea City, for a, a, a very talented player, but again, does it, two questions. One, does he fit their style? As you just said, perhaps Edin Dzeko doesn't. And two, are they just creating more of a, of a problem in terms of selection when, when, when they sign somebody like Boney? Again, a talented player. You want talent. But there, there's so, it, it almost seems like there's, there's just too much mucking up the, the works there for City. I think that the signing of Wilfred Boney consequently spelled the end of Stevan Jovic. He was obviously removed from the Champions League but voiced immense displeasure of that understandably. So I think tactically, yeah, I see why they bought him. He's a, he's a fantastic target man. He's brilliant at hold at play. He brings in other players around him as we saw with Swansea and that's what they need on occasion. They need their striker not just to score goals but also fashion chances for those around him. Players like Samir Nasri, David Silva. Those players aren't contributing enough in terms of the production of goals and, and actually scoring the goals themselves rather than, than assisting. And that's where they need to improve. And someone like Boney certainly can facilitate that. You also need a degree of diversity, I think, in your strike force. If, if I look at perhaps, again, that 90, you know, the, the late 90s side of Man United that won the treble, there was a, a real diversity in the strike force there. You had the likes of Cole and York who worked effortlessly together. You had Sheringham who was more cerebral, more intelligent with the ball. And then you had someone like Ole Solskjaer who was willing to be that super sub, who was willing to sit on the bench, watch the game and take his moment. And until you can really fashion that kind of fluidity and that kind of variety in your strike force, I think you're going to struggle to conquer multiple tournaments. And as we're seeing with City, that's kind of the problem. Yes, they've got different types of striker and Aguero and and Dzeko and perhaps Jovetic, but are they best fitting as a u- as a unit, as a group? Because ultimately, for me, that's what a strike force is. It's a unit of individuals that have to come together and have to harmonize in different ways. Let me turn back to Liverpool quickly. Obviously, in, in, in good recent form, they've figured something out. Perhaps Brendan Rodgers is getting credit for uh, making adjustments that have made them successful. When you watch Liverpool play... Um, and you see, you know, you see them beat Manchester City and, and, and Dent City's title hopes, while at the same time maybe bolstering their chances at a top four finish. What what do you see working for Liverpool? I see players like Henderson beginning to move into their own. I think it's difficult for him because he's always going to draw comparisons to Steven Gerrard. You, you live in that shadow, and it's time for him to kind of move away from that. I think equally, he's a very different player. Uh, I think you look at Coutinho, you then look at someone who was purchased for eight and a half million, had injury issues at Inter Milan, no, no question about that. But for, for whatever reason, perhaps the way that he's training, Liverpool have been able to negate those issues, which is surprising given that the, the Premier League is, is a more robust and more physical league than Serie A. But for me, it shows that there's potential there. There's immense potential there. And certainly we can question a number of, of Rodgers' signings. Joe Allen, to me, still wasn't worth the money. I think he was purchased as a 
as a player that he knew, which is something that I think managers across the board do when they move to new clubs. They want to bring it in one of their guys, uh, so to speak. And so there's potential for improvement on that end, but equally, it's not an entirely lost cause. The Balotelli situation needs to resolve itself in the summer. But if you look at the core of that squad, the likes of Daniel Sturridge, Raheem Sterling, Jordan Henderson, and Coutinho there, you've got a very exciting group of players that could grow together over the next couple of years, providing that Liverpool can resist the temptation to cash in on one, two, maybe even three of them, and hold them together and then build around them with some considered signings in the, the coming transfer windows. Uh, I'm going to ask about a player who, who seemingly does not fit with, with Liverpool, and you mentioned uh, Ole Gunnar's... Um, his his desire to to fill that super sub role, or at least his his he had the uh, he had the mindset to fill that super sub role. It doesn't seem like Mario Balotelli is that type of player. If he's not going to start, you wonder if he's going to fit at Liverpool at all. I don't know that any of the rumors out there are true right now, Christian. But could you imagine Mario, Mario Balotelli making a move, say to, to a place like MLS in the near future? I I can't. Um, I think he's too young. For starters, I think he'll have takers in Italy, uh, which is another issue to factor in. I think, if I'm honest, it's very easy, almost clickbait journalism, to say that Mario Balotelli, this character who who polarises opinion, could move to a league like Major League Soccer. I think certainly it's nice to see it. But equally, I question whether Orlando City would be interested at all, if, if, if that's the only club I believe that's been linked to them so far. They seem very considered in their approach. The, the moves they've made, the likes of Aurelien Colley and Amobi Akugu, Kakar, etc. They're very considered, studied moves that I think have been given a lot of care and consideration. For me, signing Balotelli doesn't fit with that profile, and I think you have to look at that sometimes when you're you're looking at whether a player could move to a club. Is does he fit the the design of how they do transfers normally? Uh, turning to the other match um, on Sunday, Arsenal beating Everton, and um, certainly words that can be uh, we can you know we can um, talk a little bit about Arsenal, but maybe spend some time on Everton because this has not been uh, this has not been an easy season uh, for the Toffees, and there's a bit of I think there's a bit of heat obviously on Roberto Martinez. He he was he came into that club with a very strong reputation. Do you think he's damaged his reputation? I think it's just a matter of of the uh, the. The, the problems at Everton in terms of, of budget issues, it, what's what's going on there? I, I think budget issues is, is perhaps not fair. I mean, he, he did spend a significant portion of that on, on Romelu Lukaku, which, again, I kind of understand because at the time, he seemed the best option. He fit the team effortlessly. But as with any young player, he's going to have peaks and troughs and he's going to have smoother moments and rougher moments and you have to be willing to ride them. The problem for me does go back to that Europa League, and we've seen it consistently at the start of the decade. You've had Newcastle nearly go down after finishing fifth and qualifying for the Europa League. Even Fulham, it seemed that we made the the UEFA Cup or the Europa League final, I should say. They saw a five-place drop from where they finished the season previously to the one that they had there. They had a significant squad in terms of number and depth. So it's certainly an impact, and I think it's an impact because it reduces your training time, it gives you more travel time, you've also got to get across Europe, you've got to play more football, you haven't got as much time to prepare, obviously. And I think for a style like Martinez's, which puts the ball in players' feet, which means you're more susceptible to mistakes as a consequence, as we saw with his Wigan side, who perhaps weren't as technically proficient as this Everton side on paper, you're going to see issues of that. And equally, you look at more of this squad. You've got Tim Howard, a goalkeeper who I think was exceptional in the summer, but is getting older. You've got Phil Jagielka, you've got Sylvan Distan, the real heart of that defence when they were successful, getting a year older. And you can't stop time, um, as I'm sure we're all learning to, to varying degrees. And that's been one of the problems for Everton, is that, yes, John Stones is, is impeccably talented, but even he has these moments where he's still learning the game. He's still feeling his way around how he wants to play as a defender. And that's going to have problems and issues. And even more so when someone like Martinez encourages them to play football, which I think is a very admirable thing to do, but there are going to be consequences to that sometimes. As for Arsenal, uh, the the win puts them in third place at the moment. I mean, this just seems like another one of those seasons, Christian, where Arsenal is going to... I mean, we, we, we obviously come off of the Champions League um, performance against Monaco, which... Uh, wasn't good, but they still have an opportunity to to do something in the league, and yet you just get the feeling that they're going to finish fourth again. Is, is that where we're going to see Arsenal end up? 
Personally, I think yes. Um, but the, the problem with them, I was discussing this with a friend of mine today. I just question if perhaps the, the dipping into the French market and the foreign markets that Wenger was famed for in his early years has changed slightly. The players that he was able to find that looked like seasoned internationals, in fact, were regular internationals for the country, aren't anymore. Olivier Giroud is not a regular for France. He's not the leading striker for France. That's Karim Benzema. So perhaps 10 years ago, where Wenger was able to, to nab Benzema from a club like Lyon, he's now not able to do that because Real Madrid are moving in on that and they're becoming more conscious of that and getting him before he shows what he's able to do and what he's capable of. And because of that, you're seeing a drop in talent. And yet, we're expecting so much more for Arsenal because they are the invincibles. They are the team that, for so long, it seems would dominate English football. And now, as you kind of put it yourself, they are, are more fighting for this fourth place. They're trying to get this this fourth place trophy that, that doesn't exist. And, and because of it, I think I'm frustrating this and and, and honestly, in, in real danger of tarnishing what was a fantastic legacy that, that Arsene Wenger had, had curated for himself. Yeah, the the, uh, the close. I mean, every year that this happens, the question is going to be asked whether or not it's time for Arsene Wenger to move on. And at the same time, everybody else in the league that's not that's not winning titles would trade places with Arsenal in a second. So it's a very difficult question, Christian. It's a hugely difficult one, and and. It's where your head and your heart fight each other on a daily basis, I imagine, if you're an Arsenal fan, because he did bring them so much. He he gave them some fantastic memories, some memories that will live long beyond his own time, uh, I imagine. But the issue comes then, at, at what point do you cut the cord? Because, again, it seems as if these clubs are only getting more dominant at the top, and they're starting to really establish themselves. And, and in some ways, the... The result against Monaco didn't feel as unique as it was they have. Um, that was a poor result for them. It was a really difficult result as well because Monaco themselves had spent big, but by no means were fantastic. It was a very new back four. And yet they were undone by a fairly rudimentary tactic, if you think about it, in terms of the sitting deep, the sitting narrow, the weighing for them and counting on them. That was not something that was groundbreaking and that we'd never seen before. And yet Arsenal weren't able to react. And because of that, you perhaps put some of that blame at Arsene Wenger's door. It's not encouraging his side to be wide. Mm-hmm. Thierry Henry told a great story of how Pep Guardiola would say to him at Barcelona, stay on the line. And if he would encroach, he'd say, stay on the line, that wide. <laughs> and if he would refuse still, he would say, look, either you stay on the line, or you can come and sit and watch the game on the bench with me. And I think that, that that kind of management, that kind of certainty towards what you're trying to do is something that perhaps Wenger's lost in recent years I, I feel as if he's stubborn in the wrong avenues and it's starting to cost Arsenal and the, the academy to me doesn't seem as as fruitful as it once did um, and because of that again you're seeing a drop off and it's it's all building into a perfect storm Arsenal are a, a huge football club with immense potential and it's time they started to deliver on that Christian Hanez uh, covers football for many different places including ITV The Guardian uh, Etc. Follow him on Twitter, K H E N E A G E. Chris, appreciate the time and uh, get out of the wind, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Pleasure as always, right. mate. Speak to you soon. Let's take a break. When we come back. Chris Camrani from the Salt Lake Tribunal join us. We'll talk RSL, their season, the situation with the Real Monarch Stadium, and Deloy Hansen's comments about the MLS CBA negotiations. Don't go anywhere. Soccer morning brought to you by World Soccer Talk. Be right back. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on Backheel.com with Jason Davis. Here we go, back on Soccer Morning, brought to you by World Soccer Talk. I'm on the phone right now with Chris Camerani from Salt Lake City. The Salt Lake Tribune covers RSL out there. Chris, how are you? I'm doing well, Jason. It's been an interesting, I mentioned it's been an interesting, interesting week on your beat. Um, not just because we have these CBA negotiations hanging over the start of the season or because the teams out there, you know, winning desert cups and trying to get ready for a campaign that may or not may or may not start on time, but because uh, of all of the owners in MLS, <laughs> the owner of RSL is the the one guy willing to talk about the CBA negotiations, and he got smacked down by a hundred fifty thousand dollar fine. 
Um, when you when you heard what Hanson had to say, and, and maybe we can recap in a second, were you at all surprised by anything that he uh, that he said? I wouldn't say that I was surprised. Only in that Deloitte mentioned something a week before in in you know a similar spot on, on the radio station. You know he he spoke Wednesday and ultimately got fined for what he said. But the week before he opened up a little bit about it and wasn't as uh, as wasn't as brazen. <laughs> I think uh, the league looked at it and determined it was a little little vague the week before. But uh, I think. Uh, the waste of time conversation, you know, that, that caught headlines. And I think, uh, like everyone knows, we're down to the wire. We have two or three days to see if this thing gets started on time. And to, to say that at this time, I think, uh, you know, Commissioner Garber just really had no other choice. Now, do you believe, I mean, as I'm, I'm asking you to, to make a guess here, but do you believe that he speaks for, I don't know, a, a majority, a, a strong contingent of MLS owners when he says things like, any discussion about free agency is a waste of time, which is obviously extremely depressing for MLS fans who either want to see free agency or just want to see the season start on time. I don't know if he speaks for the majority because I'm not in those conversations. And if I was, um, you know, I'd be an MLS owner. So um, (laughs) I I, I think with what Deloitte said, I I honestly think his phrasing was off and obviously it was, and he shouldn't have said what he said, but I think he regretted what he said ultimately. I mean, obviously, you publicly get fined. Um, you don't want to be that guy at the end of the day. I know, I know Deloitte, you know, wants what's best for MLS, but at the end of the day, you have to you have to know what what to say and what not to say. And I mm. think he, um, you know, maybe threw out a phrase that shouldn't have been thrown out. And I think if it wouldn't have been, you know, that chunk, that waste of time conversation chunk, I think he might have been okay. But to deem that the that free agency is you know just one hundred percent totally off the table from an from an MLS owner's perspective, I think that was you know the ultimate I'm doing. Look, his his argument was a semantic sort of legal argument, and 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 in that regard, he's probably correct. But at the same time, we know MLS operates in a, in a lot of ways as individual clubs, and I, I suppose this is doubling down on. Um, you know, trying to prevent the players from getting from moving in that direction. I, and I guess what what I'm interested to to know, and I don't know that you've had these conversations yet, but how does a how does the the rank and file RSL player feel about his owner going on radio and and essentially you know just submarining the notion that he should have a have the freedom to move on to where he wants to go when his contract's up? Right, that, and kind of the tricky thing for me was I was in Tucson last week. Um, and those comments, you know, Deloitte spoke Wednesday and RSL didn't have availability Thursday. They had a day off because they had just played sporting Kansas city the night before. So I didn't get a chance to talk to the guys. I, I mean, I think you, you could just guess and say that none of them were happy, especially, you know, I, I talked to Nick Ramondo the day before, and he said the players have never been uni- as united as they have. Uh, and that's kind of been a, uh, a theme ongoing with, with the CBA talks on the players union side. So I, they, I mean, the players like Deloitte, they love Deloitte, but I think at the end of the day, they can't be too pleased with uh, his statement at this time. You know, I mean, it, it was tough. I, I think it, it makes things that much more interesting in the next 24 to 48 hours. Yeah, you know, and, and, I, and I can't help but wonder, and I don't think I'm the only one out there that's thinking about this. Uh, you know, I've asked, uh, I had a chance to talk to Craig Weibel last week or a couple weeks ago, and I, and I asked him about the... The, the through line, the, the thread that is RSL's culture and how that, how do you maintain that when you've, you've turned over ownership in the last couple of years, you've turned over the GM, Garth Logway's moved on, you've turned over the head coach, Jason Christ has moved on. I understand that Jeff Kassar was there before. You obviously have a core of players who are a major driver of that, but how do you maintain RSL being what RSL was when there's been so much change? Well, I think we're about to find out this year. And I think last year people thought this a little bit, but this year is definitely the year that we will find out what this franchise is made of and how it adapts to change. As you mentioned, you lose Dave Checkets, Jason Kreiss, Garth Lagerway, and those are guys that took this club, and as you know, they were a bottom feeder playing in front of a few thousand you know, sparse crowds at Rice-Eccles Stadium, at a college football stadium on turf. Uh, they helped really turn this thing around. So now you look at they have new pieces in place. I think they're lucky in that they still have that 
the spine. They have Ramondo, they have Beckerman, they have Morales. And these are guys who still believe 100%. You know, you talk to them and they're certain that they can contend for an MLS Cup. So I think they're lucky in that they have those guys to, to lead. And I think you look at Beckerman and Ramondo as, as staples who are still there. But I think Javier Morales is re- a really underrated piece on this team and continues to be uh, 35 years old, still going strong. Um, still making amazing plays, as we saw the other night in the Desert Diamond Cup final. He's a guy who really, I think, leads in this locker room but doesn't necessarily get the credit because he's a laid-back guy. Um, but I think that to, to, to be able to have those guys to, to lean on is big. But as you said earlier, this is the year. We're going to see if Luis Gill can can start 20 to 25 games, possibly more, and, and make an impact. We're going to see how... Chris Schuler and Hamasin Olave pair together. We're going to see if RSL sticks to a four-three-three, uh, and it doesn't. It doesn't help that Joao Plata is out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think till probably April or May with that, with that foot fracture. So it's definitely the most interesting time, in my opinion, in the RSL beat since I think you could say probably 2010, 2011, when they're on that Concacaf Champions League run. Well, you said Javier Morales is, is is possibly underrated as as not only a player but certainly as a leader in that team. I mean, he's a quiet guy. He's obviously not, uh, you know, he's not out front the way that maybe Beckerman and Ramondo are because they're U.S. internationals. Um, but there's a, there were a couple other guys who, who certainly fall, it fell into that underrated, under the radar category and, and Wingert and Grabovoy who are gone. What does their loss mean to the makeup of the team? Um, well, it's a bummer for a B writer because you could go to those guys at any time and, and they would be, they would shoot straight with you. And I think that's going to be interesting to see you know, what guys really step up in terms of being voices and, and totally, I, I, you, I couldn't agree more. And you throw Nat Borchers in that conversation as well. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I, I, I think as most MLS minds around the league say, Ned Grabovoy is arguably the most underrated player in the league. Um, and, you know, Chris Winger really solidified himself in that spot on that left side of the back line for eight years here. Uh, we'll see. They brought in DeMar Phillips, a Jamaican international. A 31-year-old guy who played at Stoke City, who you know won titles in Norway, speedster, really athletic, likes to get forward. Um, he picked up a little bit of a hamstring knockdown in Tucson. I think he's still day to day, but he's he's a he's a uh, an underrated acquisition in terms of RSL. I mean, he's not going to grab the headlines, but they're really excited about what he can bring to the club. And I still uh, I hate to be the guy who keeps bringing Luis Gill up, but it's got to be that year for Luis. Mm. I mean, 2013, towards the tail end of the year, he really started to showcase what he could do in, in RSL's run to MLS Cup. And last year, he got he got hurt and he couldn't you know find minutes. Luke Mulholland had a breakout year. He had seven goals and six assists as a guy coming out of the NASL. And Jeff Kassar kind of rode Luke until the the postseason because he was so effective. So I think this year, Luis has got to be able to showcase what he can do both ways, offensively and defensively, especially if they you know switch to this four three three more often. Well, obviously the injury is um, is part of it, and and as you said, Luke Mulholland played very well last season. But is there something to be said for Jeff Kassar? Maybe I don't know. I don't know if it's mismanaged necessarily, but when you have a talent like Luis Gill who needs playing time, who needs an opportunity to, to get games, how, how do you justify sort of leaving him on the sideline as much as he did? Well, I think Jeff went with Luke often because, like you said, Luke was giving goals and assists, and I think Luke wasn't really that guy that they expected to. And he kind of what, he, he was kind of what Luis was in 2013 when Luis – you know, I think he had six goals and six assists or five goals and five assists in, in 2013. He was, I think in sports, you know, we, we follow that idiom of it's hard to leave the hot hand mm-hmm. off the lineup. And I think, especially in big games, I mean, Luke was was notching assists in big games. And I think he had a big, he had a big assist in that win against Seattle in August last, last, uh, last year when RSL kind of, I think they leapt into first place for brief moment for a brief moment so um i think this this is going to be the year that we see what jeff Cassar does with Luis Gill, and i th- I'm, and i'm interested to see how he handles that relationship i know Luis; it was tough for Luis last year and, and obviously i had to je- I had to ask jeff plenty of times you know why is Luis on the bench and 
Jeff's always faced the music and he said, Luis is working, but we, we need him to be a complete player. And, and I think looking at Luis this year, he's bulked up, he's taller. I mean, you think this kid is still young. He's, yeah. he's 20 years old. Yeah. So, um, it's going to be interesting to see how they utilize him because you look at these, these kind of these older pieces, Luis Gill is going to be that young player that can, that can kind of be that game changer for this club. And one other thing is, you know, RSL for so long was looked at a club that was aging a little bit, but I think the, the average age is 25, 26, 27 this year. So I, I think we're going to have to start moving away from that, you know, old RSL uh, stereotype in 2015. Secondary to Deloy Hansen's comments about the, the CBA and free agency this past week was the, um, the collapse of a, a plan to build a stadium for Rail Monarchs, and and now, uh, as you've told me ahead of this interview, it looks like there's going to be a press conference tomorrow to announce the idea for a new site. What's the status right now with the uh, plan to build a stadium for the Monarchs, and what's the what's the ultimate? Um, how big are we talking about? And and give me an idea of of what geographic location the club is considering. Well, I, I know for a fact that they're going to stay in the Salt Lake Valley. It's just a matter of where where they want to go and where they can find land. Um, Deloitte's always said, and he told me this last week, that they want to keep the Monarchs close to RSL. They want the you know the minor league club to be close to the parent club, so coaches can work together. You know, Kassar and his staff can go to Monarchs matches and practice and and see how they're doing. And it, it would be a lot more difficult if you know the Monarchs were in San Diego or Boise. This way, Kassar can just get on the 15 and drive wherever and, and go check that out. I uh, don't know specifics yet. I know the, the Fair Park was expected to be an 8,000-seat stadium. Uh, Deloitte was going to pay for that himself. Don't know specifics yet. All I know is that tomorrow is a, a press conference, and we're going to see what they, what they have to say. But I would imagine that it's going to follow along the same, the same guidelines as you know, what the Fair Park was going to be. I would imagine six to 8,000. Um, that's that's just totally conjecture on my part, but I would imagine that they're going to definitely stay in the valley, and uh, that's always been the plan since since they went to the Fair Park initially, and uh, since that that plan kind of fell through. Uh, Chris, we live in a country where second division teams are happy if they get five thousand people in the building, and your your market happens to be the smallest in MLS. Is there is there really a notion that they're going to be able to sell out a, a stadium of of eight thousand for? for what amounts to RSL's reserve team? We'll see. <laughs> uh, we'll see. Uh, seriously, Jason, we'll see. Um, they're, they're selling season tickets and whatnot. Um, I know RSL has a burgeoning you know, following here. They, I think Deloitte said a couple of weeks ago they're up to 14,500-ish in terms of season tickets at Rio Tinto. We'll see with the Monarchs. It's a, it's a big, big undertaking, I think, to, to throw, you know, how much money Deloitte wants to throw into a minor league stadium for the Monarchs. Um, and I think it speaks to, to what they think will work for them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they have arguably one of the best youth soccer academies in the country down in Casa Grande, Arizona, and they've turned out a lot of pro players, a lot of uh, D1 athletes. But to answer your question, I have no idea. I think, um, like you said, selling a, a minor league stadium to uh, to a community is tough. We have the Salt Lake Bees here; they're the AAA affiliate for the Los Angeles Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, and they uh, it's tough. If it's a fireworks night, they sell out. But other than that, right. it's usually uh, it's it's well, usually sparse. You know, so, I, so that's going to be an interesting interesting development. For I, sure. I, I like the aspiration of it all, and, and maybe a last question I'll leave you with here on in regards to to the Monarchs is. Do you imagine that um, that RSL is going to operate them any differently than, say, LA does with LA two, or is this going to be, you know, pretty standard in terms of what's becoming established as the the MLS USL partnership? I think I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. I, w- I would imagine that it's going to be much like LA two. It's going to be very involved. RSL is going to be very involved, and and likewise, I think Jeff Gasar and, and the coach Freddie Juarez. They're very close. Freddie was a uh, coach down in Casa Grande for the academy system. They brought him up. He knows a lot of these young players that they'll likely sign this week. Um, it's, I think they're going to try to keep the development very close to RSL. And that's, I think that's the main selling point is, is why they want to keep the, the team in the Valley and why they want to you know, build potentially this minor league stadium in the Valley as well. 
Chris Camroni covers RSL for the Salt Lake Tribune. He's out there right now. Are, are you are you still in Arizona? Or are you back home? I'm back home, man. It's uh, it was 75 and sunny the day I left, and overcast. Little 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 flakes falling outside my window right now, so it's, <laughs> so it's, it's a little depressing. We can't we can't wait for spring to come, Chris. I appreciate the time <laughs> and the insight. Best of luck. Hopefully, we'll have you back on soon when the season starts. Let's hope. Thanks, yep. Jason. I uh, appreciate it. Let's uh, take a break. When I come back, I will open up the phone lines. You can jump in, 347-756-6276. It's Soccer Morning, brought to you by World Soccer Talk. Don't go anywhere. Be right back. It be feeling like the life that I'm living, man, on patrol. Every day I'm in a fight for my soul. Could it be? Welcome back to Soccer Morning on Backheel.com with Jason Davis. Here we go, back on Soccer Morning, brought to you by World Soccer Talk. Phone lines are open, 347-756-6276. How worried are you that the MLS season will not start on time? 72 hours to get a deal done. 72 hours to hash it out. 72 hours for one of these sides to back down. Because that's what's required here. I don't know what kind of, I don't know what kind of compromise it could possibly come to. Are the players going to be happy with some sort of gutted free agency like model? That's what they got the last time around. That's what re- the reentry draft was supposed to be. It was a, it was a compromise. It was a hedge against free agency. The owner said, we can't do free agency. The player said, okay, how about this weird convoluted thing where players who are out of contract go into a draft and everybody has an opportunity and, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Jimmy Conrad, major architect of that, by the way. And I've had the opportunity to talk to Jimmy about that experience, being in the room during negotiations back in 2010, being a guy who was pushing for the reentry draft as a compromise because the league wouldn't consider free agency. And I don't know what his thoughts are on that process today. He went through it. He ended up going through it after sport after Kansas City, maybe still the Wizards at the time. Didn't offer him a new contract. He went into the re-entry draft, ended up at Chivas USA to finish his career. And he said, he said that while, yeah, it's not free agency and I couldn't uh, negotiate with everybody, I had interest from DC, I had interest from Chivas, I had interest from the Galaxy, and he was sort of able to talk to everybody. Now, maybe they weren't bidding against each other for his rights, but if Jimmy said, I don't want to go to Team A or Team B, in fact, he wanted to go back to Southern California where he's from. If he tell, told a team like D.C. United, I don't want to play in D.C., then effectively he was choosing his destination in some way. Now, again, it's not the same thing as free agency. Free agency conveys with the opportunity to say to Team A, I'm getting this much, you know, I, I, I'm getting an offer from Team B for 10% more. That's what free agency is. That's why the owners don't want it. And that's why we're all concerned the season's not going to start on time because the owners refuse to, uh, to to even consider it. Deloy Hansen apparently doesn't speak for everybody, but he has, he, he's got a very hard line about it. So there's at least one or two or three, possibly more guys, represented in that room or in that room who are completely against the notion of free agency. And, and, and again, the season not starting on time could be disastrous, at least in microcosm in a couple of places. It would be a disaster disaster in Orlando where word is now out that they have sold every ticket available for the Citrus Bowl with their home opener coming up against New York City FC. That's fantastic news for Orlando. Talk about buzz in Orlando. Now, maybe they, maybe they gave away a bunch of tickets. Maybe some people bought blocks of tickets and gave them away, and not every single seat will be filled. But to have 60,000 tickets distributed for your inaugural MLS match is a big deal. Congratulations to Orlando City. I just hope it's not all for naught. I just hope it's, it actually matters come game time. Because it has to be now. 72 hours. That's it. Those New York City FC players 
who are members of the MLS Players Union are not going to get on that plane out of JFK or Newark or LaGuardia, wherever the hell they fly out of, to go down to Orlando if there's no collective bargaining agreement. Rick and Philly, what's up? Hey, Jason. How you doing? Uh, I'm I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> now, first off, I, first off, I should say I'm actually rooting for about a one-week strike because I have a meeting the day of the union season. <laughs> so if they can push it back about a week, I'm doing okay. Okay. Um, with that said, what are we supposed to make of the fact that the owners themselves are finally in the room and the owners that are in the room are two of the least ambitious owners and, uh, and that the new money, that uh, the new ownership groups aren't represented there. The fact that we have the crafts and the hunts there, but we don't have the guys from Seattle. We don't have the guys from Toronto. We don't have a rep from NYCFC. We don't have a rep from Orlando. The people that are actually pushing the salaries higher on the DPs are not the ones who are in the room there. I don't know that, I mean, that might mean something, Rick. I suppose that you definitely, if you're going to sort of try to parse out which owners fall into which camps, it can't be a good sign if there are conservative owners in the room right now with the deadline rapidly approaching. But at the same time, we know that Seattle's ownership group has pull. We know that LA, you know, whether or not Anschutz is in the room and whether Anschutz counts as conservative, his team goes out and spends money. Um, and, and certainly Bruce Arena is a driving force behind that team and their ambitions. And he would love to see all of the, uh, all of the restrictions removed. So I, I think that there's still something to be said for a strong sense that they don't necessarily represent everybody and they're going to have to find, they're going to have to come closer to their, uh, you know, to, to their contemporaries who are more likely to, to advocate for opening things up a bit. Well, I didn't mean it necessarily financially. What I mean is in terms of being forward thinking. Well, okay, but, the, but that's the, the owners it's who the same are more thing. open to innovation and the owners who are more open to stretching the rules and finding new ways of doing things. It's certainly the younger ownership groups. I mean, the guys coming in well, but from other that, businesses. Isn't that six and one half dozen in the other, Rick? I mean, if you're if you're looking to move, to be forward thinking and innovative, you're essentially saying, "Give me new ways to spend my money." On my players now, maybe you're not saying open up the book, you know, open up everything, uh, get get rid of uh, salary caps, get rid of player restrictions uh, on movement, get rid of everything. But you're certainly saying I want more ways to make my team better, which is again about money. No, that that's perfectly fair. I I just find it I I just find it very interesting, and also the fact that all the guys in the room are NFL guys. Uh, who's in that room? Uh, well, Garber, of course, who came from the NFL, Kraft, uh, the Hunt, and the guy from Vancouver, uh, the guy who owns Vancouver, who also is in the CFL, not the NFL. Okay, you said NFL. Greg Kerfoot from Vancouver's in that room. Yeah, he's not an NFL yeah. guy. I don't know what the C- I don't know if the CFL, if his CFL involvement has anything to do with this particularly. But maybe the maybe the NFL connection does have something to to do with this. Again, you are talking about. Um, the old money in MLS, the the old except for Kerfoot maybe the old, uh, the old guard, the guys who were there in the beginning um, with the hunts and the crafts. Certainly, the guys who put as put more money into the league than anybody else in the hunts. Um, even if Lamar's no, lo, lo, not around anymore, uh, we know that the hunts are still operating in that uh, in that sort of um, MLS 1.0 mindset in a lot of ways. I. I don't know what that means, Rick. I hope it doesn't mean bad things for the players in the end, even if I want the season to start on time. Yeah, I, I just go back to Bo Doria's description of when the league was actually being formed back in 94, 95, 96. And a lot of it was the NFL guys looking at the NFL labor structure, looking at the NFL ownership structure, and trying to correct what they saw as the perceived flaws of that system. And single entity and no free agency was, as much as free agency is to contain expenses, it was also simply to control the players, to prevent them from having an effective union, to, protect, to prevent them from having negotiating strength at all. And I think that these guys, being the old money and coming from the NFL, they're still operating under that sort of assumption. Yeah, you know, and there's uh, there's some question. Uh, thanks for the call, Rick. I'm going to move on. Uh, Tyler in Virginia is on the line. Hold on one second, Tyler. Uh, there's some question... And this has been brought up a couple of times since negotiations started, since the issue of free agency has cropped up once again about whether or not the players should sue MLS rather than go 
for the strike, um, uh, go for the strike and, and try to force their hand that way. Because again, the players are not going to outlast the owners when it comes to a work stoppage. If they go back into the courts, they may have a chance. The problem is, and there's a good article about this possibility up um, over at uh, American Soccer Now by Stephen Bank, uh, who's a, US, a UCLA law professor. The problem is they don't have the backing to do this because they don't necessarily have the funds. And, and as far as I know, the NFL players aren't backing them the way that they did over um, over Frazier versus MLS. You don't have the International Players Union saying that they would commit money. Where's that Where's that, that funding going to come from? Tyler, what's going on? Uh, not too much, man. I just wanted to call in and weigh in on the whole CBA thing. Um, but just to kind of comment on your question first, um, a part of me does feel like it might be better off to, I mean, because I think the number that's been uh, reported is what they have, you know, five, six, six million, somewhere in that neighborhood, uh, as far as the players' union is concerned. Like, would it maybe be better to continue building that war chest and do this the next time around? But on the other hand, I also am of the opinion that it is a little odd that the players don't have free agency at this point. I mean, we know why, but I still don't think that that, that makes it any more right that the players are restricted in that way. You, you know, I, I think that the issue for the players is that there is a confluence of factors coming together here at the start of this particular season. Number one, the twentieth MLS season, which I think people mm-hmm. I think people have forgotten that this is a momentous sort of year and the fact that it is year twenty of MLS. Number two, yeah. you've got teams coming in in New York and Orlando who are generating buzz, who are getting some excitement going. Sixty thousand people have have bought tickets to go see Orlando City play their first game. New York City FC has sold 14,000 season tickets and is opening up another section of Yankee Stadium for that opening match. There, There is, whether or not it's a good fit or not up there, there's certainly some buzz around that team. You have big stars coming in, and Kaká and David Villa in the expansion uh, with the expansion teams. Then you have Steven Gerrard coming later in the year, Frank Lampard coming later in the year. Josie Outdoor has returned to MLS. Giovinco got out of his Juventus contract early yeah. to join TFC so that they could go make the playoffs finally. All of this stuff, and you got a new stadium opening up in San Jose, and mm-hmm. all of this stuff is coming together to to present the possibility that you could damage the league more this year than it you could. Sounds, yeah, it kind of sounds like everything is coming together, but they just don't have it on the financial side. I mean, if they had, if they had ten, fifteen, twenty million dollars, you know, ready to roll, then I would say. I mean, yeah. it doesn't matter which angle you choose. You can, well, you know, again, that's tried in the court. That's why it's 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 frustrating to me, and it's it's sad to me that there isn't somebody else, some somebody with more money backing the, the MLS players here. I mean, again, the NFL players were involved in that strike. I'm sorry, the strike, the lawsuit back in, yeah. in the late 90s. You have an international players union, which doesn't seem to do much else. What's it? FIFPRO. They don't seem to do anything except make statements. Maybe one day actually step up and, and put your money with your, where your mouth is. Maybe they don't have that money. I don't know. Um, there, there's just nobody else doing anything for these players, and they are a young a, a young union, and they don't have the resources to go and sit out for a protracted period of time in order right. to make their point. And I'm going to say this, and, and, and this is from Dan Wolf 2 on Twitter. I support the strike by MLS flat out rejecting change is not good for the sport, but that's MLS for you. And I'm telling you right now, any sense that MLS as an organization and as a group of owners and as a group of investors has that they are doing the right thing for soccer in America, that they have, look at where we've come, look how far the league has come Mm -hmm. in 20 years, and my my gosh, uh, where would we be without the money of the the Hunts and Anschutz and Kraft? That's all true, but they lose all of that moral high ground if they refuse to budge on this. If If they don't even consider the possibility, if they are flat out telling the players no chance, if they're treating them like children, which is essentially the way, the feeling I get, through all of this, then you lose all of that. At any any time somebody calls this show and says, MLS is a bunch of jokers, they don't know what they're doing, they're hurting soccer in America, I'm not going to be able to argue with them. Right. I mean, I think, I, I wondered about this, Jason, do we have a situation maybe behind closed doors where you do have that old guard who is kind of dead set in the ground? I mean, they. I would. I, one would have to think that they are the respected owners uh, because they've been here so long, they put the most money in, 
and you've got these, so, you know, the hunts, the crafts, the, you know, whoever, and then you've got the newer owners, the more forward-thinking owners that maybe wouldn't be so opposed to, invest, you know, like investigating maybe, you know, some possibilities on the free agency uh, aspect of yeah. it. But because you do have, you know, this old guard here, they are the tone setters, you know, they're the, the ones that set the message. Well, I, I, think, I think Rick kind of alluded to this. When you have a group of owners who are well-versed in, in NFL and the NFL labor uh, issues over mm-hmm. the past 25, 30 years. Those are the guys who are, are not going... They, again, and I said this on the Best Soccer Show, which just came out this morning. Go listen to that as well. I talked to Jared Dubois about this. These guys are business people first and foremost. They are entrenched, moneyed... Uh, you know, they, they earned their money in a lot of cases. They they aren't guys who, who got inherited to, uh, inheritances or whatever. I can't say that word. Um, they weren't, they weren't given their money in most cases. They earned it. But that, once they earn it, they become very entrenched in the notion that they're going to protect every dollar that they have. I think the richer you are, the more conservative you are. And that's what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with conservative guys who, again, have been through the wars with the NFL and they don't see, they don't see a reason to back down. And, and while, while we're sitting here weighing right and wrong, that's not even entering their mind. For oh, them, no, it's a hundred. It's a hundred percent about the bottom line. Appreciate the call, Tyler. All right, man. Have a great weekend. All right, there you go, Bill. Uh, Bill in Brooklyn. What's going on? Hey, Jason. How you doing? So I say here's, Bill? Right. here's what I'm thinking about all this: is that if you have sixty thousand people, uh, you know, uh, coming to the game in Orlando on uh, on Saturday, and then you have, um, you know, the uh, lower deck and then part of the upper deck of the Yankee Stadium game. Uh, coming in, whatever. That's $185 million in expansion money that is coming to the league, which, I mean, I have to look to see what everyone else costs, but that almost might be half of the league what they paid to get in. There's no better time for the players to start to strike because that amount of money having to either be refunded or rescheduled, it's, uh, and just the how bad that's going to look for ESPN and for everything else. The players have very little leverage, but this might be the best opportunity that they get to use it. I agree. I mean, that's what I've outlined. I think that this is the moment where the players feel like they have the most leverage. I, I don't think it's a lot of leverage, Bill. I don't think it's enough leverage. I don't think it's going to change anything in the end. But I feel like they almost have to do this as a statement. It's not about winning the war. It's about opening up the hostilities because you folded in the past or you, you, you went along with the status quo in the past. And again, this is, this is a very young union. I don't, we're not even talking about the existence of MLS. We're talking about the last 15 years, the most that they've been around them and trying to, to collectively bargain a solid agreement for for themselves. And here's Andrew on Twitter. This isn't about a free agency. It's about the legal structure of their business. Yes and no. I, I mean, I think it is about the legal structure of the business, but the legal structure of the business exists because they don't want free agency. This is a it's a very circular kind of thing. The reason MLS was established as a single entity organization is because they were protecting themselves against what free agency brings, which is rising labor costs. I, I totally agree. And I'm, uh, I feel like I'm one of the few people that's really hoping for that, uh, for that strike to go, uh, to go out there yeah. on, uh, on uh, this weekend, but we'll, we'll see what happens. It's very difficult. I mean, you know, I'm going to draw a, a, a parallel here. Thanks for the call, Bill. When I talked to Chris Renez about Arsenal and about that, that heart, head and heart push pull over Arsene Wenger's status as the manager of Arsenal. When they continue year after year to sort of not, not underwhelm, but come up short of their old standards. And it's, it's finished fourth, going to the Champions League, eventually bow out, finished fourth, going to the Champions League, eventually bow. When these things continue to happen year over year, you wonder if it might be time for a change, even if you know you are in the elite 1% of world football clubs and everybody else would trade places with you in a second. When it comes to this strike, it's heart and head again. I, I I see what the players are trying to do. I understand their struggle. I want them to push as far as possible because it might be the best thing for them and the league in the long run. But at the same time, with 60,000 people set to, to go to the Citrus Bowl in Orlando, with New York City FC launching very shortly, with uh, the stadium opening up in San Jose, with all of these things, all of these new players and this new excitement, a last chance, so to speak, in Toronto with the money they've spent and and what they're asking of their fans. Seattle always bringing the noise and the crowds and everything else that's going on with this league and the buzz of the 20th season. It it 
it would be incredibly disappointing to have that wrecked. Not that I blame them again, but to have it wrecked by a work stoppage. All right, let's uh, wrap up this edition of Soccer Morning brought to you by World Soccer Talk. Thank you very much to Christian Hinej and our uh, uh, and our friend Chris Camrani from the Salt Lake Tribune. Make sure you go to backheel.com slash store to buy yourself a mug. Here's the mug if you're watching the video. Uh, we also have T-shirts. I'm wearing one right now. Look, it's uh, that's our man Chuck Blazer uh, rocking, uh, <laughs> rocking some bling. Cause you know he's blinged out. Uh, go to, um, go to iTunes, give us a rating and a review. I haven't mentioned that in a while. That helps out a lot. By the way, we were nominated. I don't even know how. I don't know where, know where it came from. Soccer Morning was nominated, nominated for a podcast award at podcastawards.com in the sports section. I think voting opens on the third. That's tomorrow. So if you're interested in helping vote Soccer Morning some sort of award, which we can't possibly win. Cause I think we're up against the biggest podcast in the world of sports then that's where you need to go to do that. Um, what else am I missing, Trevor? I'm sure I'm missing plenty of other things. Uh, oh, yeah, 3nilfc.com for your Soccer Morning t-shirt. Uh, what else? Anything else? No? I think we're, we're going to go now. I think we're going to uh, drink Slurm. <laughs> I don't even know what. Yeah, oh, that's right. Yeah. Futurama, drink Slurm. Again, uh, thanks to Hanej and Kamrani. We'll talk to you guys on Tuesday. One day closer to the deadline for the MLS CBA. Talk to you then. Bye.